Chapter Ten, Part C of Roderick Hudson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. He went straight to Roderick's apartment, deeming this, at an early hour, the safest place to seek him. He found him in his sitting-room, which had been closely darkened to keep out the heat. The carpets and rugs had been removed, the floor of speckled concrete was bare, and lightly sprinkled with water. Here and there, over it, certain strongly perfumed flowers had been scattered. Roland was lying on his divan, in a white dressing-gown, staring up at the frescoed ceiling. The room was deliciously cool, and filled with the moist, sweet odour of the circumjacent roses and violets. All this seemed highly fantastic, and yet Roland hardly felt surprised. "'Your mother was greatly alarmed at your note,' he said, "'and I came to satisfy myself that, as I believed, you were not ill.' Roderick lay motionless, except that he slightly turned his head toward his friend. He was smelling a large white rose, and he continued to present it to his nose. In the darkness of the room he looked exceedingly pale, but his handsome eyes had an extraordinary brilliancy. He let them rest for some time on Roland, lying there like a Buddhist in an intellectual swoon, whose perception should be slowly ebbing back to temporal matters. "'Oh, I'm not ill,' he said at last. "'I have never been better.' "'Your note, nevertheless, in your absence,' Roland said, "'have very naturally alarmed your mother. I advise you to go to her directly and reassure her.' "'Go to her? Going to her would be worse than staying away.' Staying away at present is a kindness. And he inhaled deeply his huge rose, looking up over it at Roland. My presence, in fact, would be indecent. Indecent? Pray explain. Why, you see, as regards Mary Garland, I am divinely happy. Doesn't it strike you? You ought to agree with me. You wish me to spare her feelings. I spare them by staying away. Last night I heard something. I heard it, too, said Roland with brevity and it's in honour of this piece of news that you have taken to your bed in this fashion? Extremes meet. I can't get up for joy. May I inquire how you heard your joyous news, from Miss Light herself? By no means. It was brought me by her maid, who was in my service as well. Casamassima's loss, then, is to a certainty your gain? I don't talk about certainties. I don't want to be arrogant. I don't want to offend the immortal gods. I'm keeping very quiet, but I can't help being happy. I shall wait a while. I shall bide my time. And then? And then that transcendent girl will confess to me that when she threw overboard her prince she remembered that I adored her. I feel bound to tell you, was in the course of a moment Roland's response to this speech, that I am now on my way to Mrs. Light's. I congratulate you, I envy you, Roderick murmured imperturbably. Mrs. Light has sent for me to remonstrate with her daughter, with whom she has taken it into her head that I have influence. I don't know to what extent I shall remonstrate, but I give you notice I shall not speak in your interest. Roderick looked at him a moment with a lazy radiance in his eyes. Pray don't, he simply answered. You deserve I should tell her you are a very shabby fellow. My dear Roland, the comfort with you is that I can trust you. You're incapable of doing anything disloyal. You mean to lie here, then, smelling your roses and nursing your visions, and leaving your mother and Miss Garland to fall ill with anxiety? Can I go and flaunt my felicity in their faces? Wait till I get used to it a trifle. 
I have done them a palpable wrong, but I can at least forbear to add insult to injury. I may be an arrant fool, but for the moment I have taken it into my head to be prodigiously pleased. I shouldn't be able to conceal it, my pleasure would offend them, so I lock myself up as a dangerous character. Well, I can only say, may your pleasure never grow less, or your danger greater. Roderick closed his eyes again and sniffed at his rose. God's will be done. On this Roland left him and repaired directly to Mrs. Light's. The afflicted lady hurried forward to meet him. Since the Cavaliere's report of her condition, she had somewhat smoothed and trimmed the exuberance of her distress, but she was evidently in extreme tribulation, and she clutched Roland by his two hands, as if in the shipwreck of his hopes he were her single floating spar. Roland greatly pitied her, for there is something respectable in passionate grief, even in a very bad cause and as pity is akin to love, he endured her rather better than he had done hitherto. "'Speak to her, plead with her, command her,' she cried, pressing and shaking his hands. "'She'll not heed us no more than if we were a pair of clocks a-ticking. Perhaps she will listen to you. She always liked you.' "'She always disliked me,' said Roland. "'But that doesn't matter now. I have come here simply because you sent for me, not because I can help you. I cannot advise your daughter.' O oh, cruel, deadly man, you must advise her. You shan't leave this house till you have advised her, the poor woman passionately retorted. Look at me in my misery and refuse to help me. Oh, you needn't be afraid. I know I'm a fright. I haven't an idea what I have on. If this goes on, we may both as well turn scarecrows. If ever a woman was desperate, frantic, heartbroken, I am that woman. I can't begin to tell you. To have nourished a serpent, sir, all these years, to have lavished oneself upon a viper that turns and stings her own poor mother, to have toiled and prayed, to have pushed and struggled, to have eaten the bread of bitterness and all the rest of it, sir, and at the end of all things to find myself at this pass. It can't be. It's too cruel. Such things don't happen. The Lord don't allow it. I'm a religious woman, sir, and the Lord knows all about me. With his own hand he had given me his reward. I would have lain down in the dust and let her walk over me. I would have given her the eyes out of my head if she had taken a fancy to them. No, she's a cruel, wicked, heartless, unnatural girl. I speak to you, Mr. Mallet, in my dire distress as to my only friend. There isn't a creature here that I can look to, not one of them all, that I have faith in. But I have always admired you. I said to Christina the first time I saw you, that there at last was a real gentleman. Come, don't disappoint me now. I feel so terribly alone, you see. I feel what a nasty, hard, heartless world it is, that has come and devoured my dinners and danced my fiddles, and yet that hasn't a word to throw to me in my agony. Oh, the money alone that I have put into this thing would melt the heart of a Turk! During this frenzied outbreak, Roland had had time to look round the room, and to see the Cavaliere sitting in a corner, like a major-domo on the divan of an antechamber, pale, rigid, and inscrutable. "'I have it at heart to tell you,' Roland said, "'that if you consider my friend Hudson—' Mrs. Light gave a toss of her head and hands. "'Oh, it's not that. She told me last night to bother her no longer with Hudson. Hudson!' She didn't care a button for Hudson. I almost wish she did. Then perhaps one might understand it. 
but she doesn't care for anything in the wide world except to do her own hard wicked will and to crush me and shame me with her cruelty ah then said roland i am as much at sea as you and my presence here is an impertinence i should like to say three words to miss light on my own account but i must absolutely and inexorably decline to urge the cause of prince casamassima this is simply impossible mrs light burst into angry tears because the poor boy is a prince eh because he's of a great family and has an income of millions eh that's why you grudge him and hate him i knew there were vulgar people of that way of feeling but i didn't expect it of you make an effort mr mallet rise to the occasion forgive the poor fellow his splendour be just be reasonable it's not his fault and it's not mine he's the best the kindest young man in the world and the most correct and moral and virtuous if he was standing here in rags i would say it all the same the man first the money afterwards that was always my motto and always will be what do you take me for do you suppose i would give christina to a vicious person do you suppose i would sacrifice my precious child little comfort as i have in her to a man against whose character one word could be breathed casamassima is only too good he's a saint of saints he's stupidly good there isn't such another in the length and breadth of europe what he has been through in this house not a common peasant would endure christina has treated him as you wouldn't treat a dog he has been insulted outraged persecuted he has been driven hither and thither till he didn't know where he was he has stood there where you stand there with his name and his millions and his devotion as white as your handkerchief with hot tears in his eyes and me ready to go down on my knees to him and say my own sweet prince i could kiss the ground you tread on but it isn't decent that i should allow you to enter my house and expose yourself to these horrors again and he would come back and he would come back and go through it all again and take all that was given him and only want the girl the more i was his confidant i know everything he used to beg my forgiveness for christina what do you say to that i seized him once and kissed him i did to find that and to find all the rest with it and to believe it was a gift straight from the pitying angels of heaven and then to see it dashed away before your eyes and to stand here helpless oh it's a fate i hope you may ever be spared it would seem then that in the interest of prince casamassima himself i ought to refuse to interfere said roland mrs light looked at him hard slowly drying her eyes the intensity of her grief and anger gave her a kind of majesty and roland for the moment felt ashamed of the ironical ring of his observation very good sir she said I'm sorry your heart is not so tender as your conscience. My compliments to your conscience. It must give you great happiness. Heaven help me! Since you fail us, we are indeed driven to the wall. But I have fought my own battles before, and I have never lost courage, and I don't see why I should break down now. Cavaliere, come here. Giacosa rose at her summons and advanced with his usual deferential alacrity. He shook hands with Roland in silence. "'Mr. Mallet refuses to say a word,' Mrs. Light went on. "'Time presses. Every moment is precious. Heaven knows what that poor boy may be doing. If at this moment a clever woman should get hold of him, she might be as ugly as she pleased. It's horrible to think of it.' 
the Cavaliere fixed his eyes on Roland, and his look, which the night before had been singular, was now most extraordinary. There was a nameless force of anguish in it which seemed to grapple with the young man's reluctance, to plead, to entreat, and at the same time to be glazed over with the reflection of strange things. Suddenly, though most vaguely, Roland felt the presence of a new element in the drama that was going on before him. He looked from the Cavaliere to Mrs. Light, whose eyes were now quite dry, and were fixed in stony hardness on the floor. "'If you could bring yourself,' the Cavaliere said in a low, soft, caressing voice, "'to address a few words of solemn remonstrance to Miss Light, you would perhaps do more for us than you know. You would save several persons a great pain. The dear Signora first, and then Christina herself. Christina, in particular. Me, too, I might take the liberty to add.' There was, to Roland, something acutely touching in this humble petition. He had always felt a sort of imaginative tenderness for poor little unexplained Jacosa, and these words seemed a supreme contortion of the mysterious obliquity of his life. All of a sudden, as he watched the Cavaliere, something occurred to him. It was something very odd, and it stayed his glance suddenly from turning to Mrs. Light. His idea embarrassed him and to carry off his embarrassment, he repeated that it was folly to suppose that his words would have any weight with Christina. The Cavaliere stepped forward and laid two fingers on Roland's breast. "'Do you wish to know the truth? You are the only man whose words she remembers.' Roland was going from surprise to surprise. "'I will say what I can,' he said. By this time he had ventured to glance at Mrs. Light. She was looking at him askance, as if upon this she was suddenly mistrusting his motives. "'If you fail,' she said sharply, "'we have something else, but please to lose no time.' She had hardly spoken when the sound of a short, sharp growl caused the company to turn. Christina's fleecy poodle stood in the middle of the vast saloon, with his muzzle lowered in pompous defiance of the three conspirators against the comfort of his mistress. This young lady's claims for him seemed justified. He was an animal of amazingly delicate instincts. He had preceded Christina as a sort of a vanguard of defence, and she now slowly advanced from a neighbouring room. "'You will be so good as to listen to Mr. Mallet,' her mother said in a terrible voice, "'and to reflect carefully upon what he says. I suppose you will admit that he is disinterested.' In half an hour you shall hear from me again." And passing her hand through the Cavaliere's arm, she swept rapidly out of the room. Christina looked hard at Roland, but offered him no greeting. She was very pale, and strangely enough it at first seemed to Roland that her beauty was in eclipse. But he very soon perceived that it had only changed its character, and that if it was a trifle less brilliant than usual, it was admirably touching and noble. The clouded light of her eyes, the magnificent gravity of her features, the conscious erectness of her head, might have belonged to a deposed sovereign or a condemned martyr. "'Why have you come here at this time?' she asked. "'Your mother sent for me in pressing terms, and I was very glad to have an opportunity to speak to you.' "'Have you come to help me, or to persecute me?' "'I have as little power to do one as I have desire to do the other.' I came in great part to ask you a question. First, your decision is irrevocable?" 
Christina's two hands had been hanging clasped in front of her. She separated them and flung them apart by an admirable gesture. "'Would you have done this if you had not seen Miss Garland?' She looked at him with quickened attention, then suddenly, "'This is interesting,' she cried. "'Let us have it out.' And she flung herself into a chair and pointed to another. "'You don't answer my question,' Roland said. "'You have no right that I know of to ask it, but it's a very clever one, so clever that it deserves an answer. Very likely I would not.' "'Last night, when I said that to myself, I was extremely angry,' Roland rejoined. "'Oh, dear, and you are not angry now.' "'I am less angry.' "'How very stupid! But you can say something, at least.' If I were to say what is uppermost in my mind, I would say that, face to face with you, it is never possible to condemn you. Perché? You know yourself. But I can at least say now what I felt last night. It seemed to me that you had consciously, cruelly dealt a blow at that poor girl. Do you understand? Wait a moment. And with her eyes fixed on him, she inclined her head on one side, meditatively. Then a cold, brilliant smile covered her face, and she made a gesture of negation. "'I see your train of reasoning, but it's quite wrong. I meant no harm to Miss Garland. I should be extremely sorry to make her suffer. Tell me you believe that.' This was said with ineffable candor. Roland heard himself answering, "'I believe it.' "'And yet, in a sense, your supposition was true,' Christina continued." I conceived, as I told you, a great admiration for Miss Garland, and I frankly confess I was jealous of her. What I envied her was simply her character. I said to myself, she, in my place, wouldn't marry Casamassima. I could not help saying it, and I said it so often that I found a kind of inspiration in it. I hated the idea of being worse than she, of doing something that she wouldn't do. I might be bad by nature, but I needn't be by volition. The end of it all was that I found it impossible not to tell the prince that I was his very humble servant, but that I could not marry him. Are you sure it was only of Miss Garland's character that you were jealous, not of, not of? Speak out, I beg you, we are talking philosophy. Not of her affection for her cousin? Sure is a good deal to ask. Still, I think I may say it. There are two reasons. One at least I can tell you. Her affection has not a shadow's weight with Mr. Hudson. Why, then, should one fear it? And what is the other reason? Excuse me, that is my own affair. Roland was puzzled, baffled, charmed, inspired, almost all at once. I have promised your mother, he presently resumed, to say something in favor of Prince Casamassima. She shook her head sadly. Prince Casamassima needs nothing that you can say for him. He is a magnificent parti. I know it perfectly. You know also of the extreme affliction of your mother? Her affliction is demonstrative. She has been abusing me for the last twenty-four hours, as if I were the vilest of the vile. To see Christina sit there in the purity of her beauty and say this might have made one bow one's head with a kind of awe. I have failed of respect to her at other times, but I have not done so now. Since we are talking philosophy, she pursued with a gentle smile, I may say it's a simple matter. I don't love him. Or rather, perhaps, since we are talking philosophy, I may say it's not a simple matter. 
I spoke just now of inspiration. The inspiration has been great, but, I frankly confess it, the choice has been hard. Shall I tell you? she demanded with sudden ardour. Will you understand me? It was on the one side of the world, the splendid, beautiful, powerful, interesting world. I know what that is. I have tasted of the cup. I know its sweetness. Ah, if I chose, if I let myself go, if I flung everything to the winds, the world and I would be famous friends. I know its merits, and I think without vanity it would see mine. You would see some fine things. I should like to be a princess, and I think I should be a very good one. I would play my part well. I am fond of luxury. I am fond of a great society. I am fond of being looked at. I am corrupt, corruptible, corruption. Ah, what a pity that couldn't be, too! Mercy of heaven! There was a passionate tremor in her voice. She covered her face with her hands and sat motionless. Roland saw that an intense agitation, hitherto successfully repressed, underlay her calmness, and he could easily believe that her battle had been fierce. She rose quickly and turned away, walked a few paces, and stopped. In a moment she was facing him again, with tears in her eyes, and a flush in her cheeks. "'But you needn't think I'm afraid,' she said. "'I have chosen, and I shall hold to it. I have something here, here, here,' and she patted her heart. "'It's my own. I shan't part with it. Is it what you call an ideal? I don't know. I don't care. It is brighter than the Casamassima diamonds.' "'You say that certain things are your own affair,' Roland presently rejoined. "'But I must nevertheless make an attempt to learn what all this means, what it promises my friend Hudson. Is there any hope for him?' That is a point I can't discuss with you minutely. I like him very much. Would you marry him if he were to ask you? He has asked me. And if he asks again? I shall marry no one just now. Roderick, said Roland, has great hopes. Does he know of my rupture with the prince? He is making a great holiday of it. Christina pulled her poodle towards her and began to smooth his silky fleece. I like him very much, she repeated, much more than I used to. Since you told me all that about him at St. Cecilia's, I have felt a great friendship for him. There's something very fine about him. He's not afraid of anything. He is not afraid of failure. He is not afraid of ruin or death. Poor fellow, said Roland bitterly. He is fatally picturesque. Picturesque, yes, that's what he is. I am very sorry for him. Your mother told me just now that you had said that you didn't care a straw for him. Very likely. I meant as a lover. One doesn't want a lover one pities, and one doesn't want, of all things in the world, a picturesque husband. I should like Mr. Hudson as something else. I wish he were my brother, so that he could never talk to me of marriage. Then I could adore him. I would nurse him, I would wait on him, and save him all disagreeable rubs and shocks. I am much stronger than he, and I would stand between him and the world. Indeed, with Mr. Hudson for my brother, I should be willing to live and die an old maid. Have you ever told him all this? I suppose so. I've told him five hundred things. If it would please you, I will tell him again. Oh, heaven forbid! cried poor Roland with a groan. He was lingering there, weighing his sympathy against his irritation, and feeling it sink in the scale when the curtain of a distant doorway was lifted, 
and Mrs. Light passed across the room. She stopped halfway and gave the young persons a flushed and menacing look. It found apparently little to reassure her, and she moved away with a passionate toss of her drapery. Rowland thought with horror of the sinister compulsion to which the young girl was to be subjected. In this ethereal flight of hers there was a certain painful effort and tension of wing, but it was none the less piteous to imagine her being rudely jerked down to the base earth she was doing her adventurous utmost to spurn. She would need all her magnanimity for her own trial, and it seemed gross to make further demands upon it on Roderick's behalf. Rowland took up his hat. "'You asked a while ago if I had come to help you,' he said. "'If I knew how I might help you, I should be particularly glad.' She stood silent a moment, reflecting, then at last, looking up. "'You remember,' she said, "'your promising me six months ago to tell me what you finally thought of me. I should like you to tell me now.' He could hardly help smiling. Madame Grandoni had insisted on the fact that Christina was an actress, though a sincere one, and this little speech seemed a glimpse of the cloven foot. She had played her great scene, she had made her point, and now she had her eye at the hole in the curtain, and she was watching the house. But she blushed as she perceived his smile, and her blush, which was beautiful, made her fault venial. "'You are an excellent girl,' he said, in a particular tone and gave her his hand in farewell. There was a great chain of rooms in Mrs. Light's apartment, at the pride and joy of the hostess on festal evenings, through which the departing visitor passed before reaching the door. In one of the first of these Rowland found himself waylaid and arrested by the distracted lady herself. "'Well, well!' she cried, seizing his arm. "'Has she listened to you? Have you moved her?' "'In heaven's name, dear madam,' Rowland begged, "'leave the poor girl alone. "'She is behaving very well.' "'Behaving well? Is that all you have to tell me? "'I don't believe you said a proper word to her. "'You were conspiring together to kill me.' Rowland tried to soothe her, to remonstrate, to persuade her that it was equally cruel and unwise to try to force matters but she answered him only with harsh lamentations and imprecations, and ended by telling him that her daughter was her property, not his, and that his interference was most insolent and most scandalous. Her disappointment seemed really to have crazed her, and his only possible rejoinder was to take a summary departure. A moment later he came upon the Cavaliere, who was sitting with his elbows on his knees and his head in his hands, so buried in thought that Roland had to call him before he roused himself. Giacosa looked at him a moment keenly, and then gave a shake of the head interrogatively. Roland gave a shake negative, to which the Cavaliere responded by a long, melancholy sigh. "'But her mother is determined to force matters,' said Roland. It seems that it must be. Do you consider that it must? I don't differ with Mrs. Light. It will be a great cruelty. The Cavaliere gave a tragic shrug. Eh, it isn't an easy world. You should do nothing to make it harder, then. What will you have? It's a magnificent marriage. You disappoint me, Cavaliere, said Roland solemnly. I imagined you appreciated the great elevation of Miss Light's attitude. She doesn't love the prince. She has let the matter stand or fall by that." The old man grasped him by the hand and stood a moment with averted eyes. 
At length, looking at him, he held up two fingers. "'I have two hearts,' he said, "'one for myself, one for the world. This one opposes Miss Light, the other adores her. One suffers horribly at what the other does.' "'I don't understand double people, Cavaliere,' Roland said, "'and I don't pretend to understand you. But I have guessed that you are going to play some secret card.' "'The card is Mrs. Light's, not mine,' said the Cavaliere. "'It's a menace, at any rate?' "'The sword of Damocles. It hangs by a hair. Christina is to be given ten minutes to recant, under penalty of having it fall. On the blade there is something written in strange characters. Don't scratch your head. You will not make it out.' "'I think I have guessed it,' Roland said, after a pregnant silence. The Cavaliere looked at him blankly but intently, and Roland added, "'Though there are some signs, indeed, I don't understand.' "'Puzzle them out at your leisure,' said the Cavaliere, shaking his hand. "'I hear Mrs. Light. I must go to my post. I wish you were a Catholic. I would beg you to step into the first church you come to, and pray for us for the next half-hour.' "'For us? For whom?' "'For all of us. At any rate, remember this.' I worship the Christina. Roland heard the rustle of Mrs. Light's dress. He turned away, and the Cavaliere went, as he said, to his post. Roland, for the next couple of days, pondered his riddle. End of chapter 10, part C